Happy Mother's Day to you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, something we've been doing for a little while now is um, we are uh, developing a habit from time to time of standing as a way of worshiping God, acknowledging that His Word is the, the only truly inspired words and they are worthy of worship. So I'll ask you to stand up right now. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand. If you're not, feel no condemnation for that, but um, go ahead and stand up. And let us read. And as we read, I want you to be hearing this as God speaking to you directly because he is. This is his word. So Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy inspired word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, in our flesh we are weak. I pray that you would give us your great grace. Give us new life in the Spirit to be able to comprehend your Word to receive from you directly, to receive your word, to apply your word to our minds and to our hearts, to the way we think and what we desire, would you help us worship you by being attentive to your word? God, would you enable us to respond with joy to you? God, would you seal the truth of your word in our hearts and minds, and would you cause it to bear joyful fruit? And God, I pray practically that you would help me this morning. I'm, I'm weak and coughing, and Lord, I pray that you would suppress the coughing and give strength to my voice this morning. God, we all need your grace, but thank you that because we are in you, Jesus, you give us and delight to give us your grace. So in you we trust. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this is one of my favorite times of year, if not my absolute favorite time, although I like it when it's even hotter. I like this time of year because everything is green and everything's growing and sprouting and, and the trees are filling out and flowers are coming up and, and, and it's joyful. It's like nature is erupting with growth and health and vibrancy and If I'm ever discouraged or down, it doesn't take much more than walking outside and seeing God's good growth that he brings and seeing God's new life and then then meditating on that, that our creator is the one who gives life. Our creator is the one who causes growth and he does bring new life and he does bring growth and, and that's encouraging and refreshing to see and to hear the sights and sounds of nature. I love the springtime. I think, you know, even the animals are happy this time of year. You know, I love seeing everything grow. I'm not exactly sure how it happens. I know that something's planted. I know that a seed of some kind or a bulb or a spore, it must go into the ground, it must die, and then something happens inside that seed that gives it growth. So this year, again, we did it last year, actually the last many years we've been here, about eight out of the 10 years we've been here, we've tried to grow some kind of garden, some kind of small little garden. We did a square foot garden, that kind of thing. And I don't know if any of you are trying that this year as well, if you've given up. 
But this year, last year, we had the, the most fruitful year. We actually had a huge crop of tomatoes, and, and we were covered over in tomatoes all summer. It was great because the kids eat them while they're picking them, and they, they eat them like apples. They take them inside, and, and they're gone. But it produced a lot of fruit. We finally figured out after like 10 years just how, what the conditions are, what's required to produce fruit, at least in our yard, in this climate, in our little soil we finally figured out, okay, this seems to be working. You know, we, we don't cause the growth, but we put the seeds there. In this case, little teeny three-foot-high tomato plants. And I don't know if anybody's planted those yet or not, but if you haven't, it's not too late. We put little three-inch-high three tomato plants, and now they're, they're close to four feet high already. It's just been amazing. God's created growth. We were faithful to plant, create the conditions. And now we just hope it grows. Like we hope it produces fruit. And we know that God is faithful. He uses different means to produce fruit. And how about you guys? I mean, who, who here has ever planted a garden? Anybody here ever planted a garden before? Or maybe just a little seed in those little cups, like when you're in kindergarten. When I was a kindergartner, I loved to put those little seeds in the cups in the windowsill and then watch it grow, right? Anybody ever do that at least? Put a little seed in a cup or plant a garden of some kind? You might be wondering, what, why in the world are we talking about this? Well... I think God's put something in us that we love to see things grow. We love to see growth because really that, that's, that's God's nature, his character in us. That he's, he has created us in his image and he's the master gardener, right? He created the Garden of Eden. He created life. He's the master gardener and God brings forth fruit. He brings forth growth. We like to see growth. We like to see fruit. It's discouraging. A few years back, when we hadn't figured out this recipe for growth with our tomatoes, when we created them, the plants grew, and no fruit became. And we were kind of concerned. And we're like, what, do we just give up? What in the world? We got like four tomatoes that year. We, we like to see growth. Don't, don't you? Don't, don't you like to see growth? When you plant something, you delight to see it. Well, that's true in our own lives. We, we like to see growth as a Christian. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a God-given desire to grow, to produce fruit. And that's a good godly desire. But sometimes the, the recipe for that, the conditions for that, it mystifies us. We don't, we don't cause ourselves to grow any more than we don't cause that seed that we put in the ground to grow. That's a God-given seed. It's, it's created by him. It's given to us. We have to do something with it, though. The same is true in the Christian walk. We, God, God creates this new life in us. He gives us the seed of the gospel, and it's the power of God for salvation. But then he says, I want you to bear fruit. But then you say, well, God, I don't, I don't bear my own fruit. But he does enable us to have conditions, to be in the right place, to, to put ourselves in the place where he can bring growth. And, and by God's grace, he does proven throughout the ages that God brings growth as we rely on his grace, as we trust in him, as we look to him. The Apostle Paul, he wrote the book to the Romans for a purpose. Did you know that? He, he wrote the book to the Romans for a purpose. Anybody know what the purpose was? He states it really early on. He says the purpose of his apostleship, anybody know what it was for? That he might do what? He might bring forth fruit. Look in Look in Romans. Romans 1.5, he tells us that he wants us to bear fruit. In fact, he was called to bear fruit. In Romans 1.5, he wrote about what Jesus commissioned him to. His commission as an apostle was for a reason. Look in Romans 1.5. It says, or look up on the screen. It says, through whom, and speaking of Jesus Christ, we've received grace and apostleship. And here's why. We've received grace and apostleship, he says, to bring forth the obedience of faith, to bring forth fruit, righteousness, obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. His apostleship is that he might bring forth the fruit of obedience of faith so that God might be worshipped. And then look a few verses down there in, in Romans 1. Just go skip a few verses down to Romans 1.11. Look down your Bibles if you have them. He tells again what his purpose is. He says, for I long to see you. And he says, why? He says that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then skip down to verse 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. And then he says, why? He says, in order that I may reap 
some harvest in order that I might reap some harvest among you as among the rest of the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul has written this letter to the Romans so that we might bear fruit. It's not just a theological treatise, okay? Sometimes we can approach God's word that way. It's just a theological treatise, just giving us truth. And Paul says, no, that's not the purpose of this. I'm writing this so that God might produce growth in you. And isn't that something we all want? Don't you want to grow in God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I, I know that you do. Don't you want to produce fruit? Are you here this morning? Do you, do you want to produce fruit this morning? If you want to produce fruit for God, raise your hand. If you're, if you're a believer, seriously, just raise your hand. I want to produce fruit for God. God is the one who causes the growth, but he gives us means. And we can place ourselves in the soil and the fertile soil of his truth. We can, we can have our minds redeemed. We can have our desires changed so that we might bear fruit and he might cause growth in us. Paul wrote this whole letter with that purpose in mind. And as he's written the book of Romans, it's clear that the whole book is about how God makes the unrighteous righteous and then how he produces actual righteousness in us. God wants to produce actual righteousness in your lives. He's already declared you righteous, and the first few chapters of Romans describe that. But he wants to produce actual righteousness as well. And so Paul, he gives us all these theological truths in the first five, six chapters of Romans, not just so that we, we know more about God, but so that we can understand who we are, who God is, and what it means to live in his grace and produce fruit. In, in Romans 1, he describes kind of the two temptations, the two areas of temptations where, where as Christians, these are fruit inhibitors, if you will, or in, uh, herbicides. You know, don't spray Roundup on your, on your tomatoes. It will cause them to die. We spray Roundup on the parking lot, and I'm hoping it kills everything eventually, by the way. But don't do that in your life. Don't spray sin Don't give yourselves over to sin. Don't spray sin around in your life. It acts like an herbicide to fruit. It's a a growth inhibitor. And so Paul, he explains the two primary ways in the first few chapters of Romans to let us know that temptation of sin to sin comes in two primary ways. I don't know if you remember or not, but I'll I'll kind of remind you what chapter 1 and 2 of Romans tells us. It says that sin comes in two primary ways. Temptation to sin comes in two ways. It comes in the mind... Listen up, it comes in the mind and it comes in the heart or our desires. Sin enters in, a, a growth inhibitor, um, and the enemy of our growth produced fruit in God is sin. And it comes, the temptation comes primarily in our minds and then our hearts, our desires. And, and what we think about God, what we think about the world around us, what we think about ourselves, what we think about the gospel, and then it also comes in what we desire. He talked about that. He says, you know, when, when their, their minds are darkened, in Romans 1, this trajectory, the path that leads into sin. And then he talks about the desires of the flesh that corrupt, that lead into sin. So there's two primary ways, two primary ways that sin enters, and it, and it, it kills growth. It, 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 it's an herbicide to growth. And Paul now, he has written Romans 6, And he's trying to show us something, something very important to see. And and if you listen to Romans 5 and 6 as just theology, you're listening wrong. So don't listen that way to Romans 7. This is not just theology. This is not theology one-on-one. This is not just good information. This is information that's meant for transformation. It's information that God gives us to change our minds, the area of temptation that we, we Give over to sin sometimes. He wants to change our minds and he wants to change our hearts, our motives. And so in Romans 6, he has told us that we have died to sin. Romans 6, 14, it's, a, it's an amazing truth. We've died to sin. And then he said, last week we learned that we were slaves once. He's trying to change our mind. You're not a slave anymore. Don't live that way. Don't submit yourself. That's how you get into sin. That's how you keep from growing is you give yourselves over to sin. Don't do that. Don't live like that anymore. And then he continues to give us some, some, some tools to change our minds, to change our hearts so that we might not sin and so we might bear fruit. And he tells us something in these first six verses of Romans 7. It's, it's really critical. It's really important. 
He tells us that we've been freed from the law to bear fruit for God. We've been freed from the law so that we might bear fruit for God. That's the desire. That's the intent. If you're a believer here this morning and you would like to bear fruit for God, you need to know. You need to have your mind changed. You've been freed from the law. And you need to have your heart's desire changed as well. And we'll see that in the last, in verses four through six. But verses one through three, they give us this first part of of what Paul is trying to change. He's trying to change the way we think. He's trying to change our minds because that's a primary battle for us as believers. When you think that you must sin, when you think that you have an obligation to sin, what are you going to tend to do? When you think that you're going to earn God's favor by, by creating these acts or works or by obeying the law that somehow you're going to be pleasing to God, you're actually going to end up being displeasing to God. And so Paul says, you need to know something because it's going to change the way you live. It's going to cause you to bear fruit if you meditate on this idea that we've been freed from the law. It's not just a theological truth. It's a transformative truth. Paul's hammering this point home, and he's been hammering it home. You're like, okay, Paul, I get it. Well, no, you don't. I don't get it. I, so often, the reason why I struggle is because I feel like I'm trapped. I feel like I'm obligated. I feel like I can't stop sinning. And Paul says, you need to stop thinking that way. That's not who you are. That's not who you've been made to be. You've been freed. Let the truth transform your mind. You're not taking advantage of the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, 14. Look in your Bibles or look up on the screen, please. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. I used to live in Canada for seven years. And while we were there, we got a a permanent resident visa or a resident alien visa. I know that some of you think I'm an alien, and I really was for a time. Um, we got a permanent resident visa, and when we would come back into the country from the United States and visiting for the holidays, we'd come back into the country, and I would actually go into the line for Canadian citizens. And I would actually travel under a, a, a Canadian permit. And if I made a mistake and I went in as a U.S. citizen, they would actually correct me and say, get out of line, go back in. You're you're not coming in under a U.S. passport. You can't do that. You're a permanent resident now. You're coming in where the citizens belong. And Paul uses that kind of analogy in in, in Romans 6.14. says, you're not under the law anymore. You have a, a right, an obligation. Now, you are now under God's grace. That's how you enter. And he was making this connection, though, and saying that, Sin has no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. He's making a connection that sin and the law are connected. When we live under the dominion of the law, it causes us to sin. That's what he's saying. When you live under the dominion of the law, you're living under the reign and power of sin. Since you can't fully keep the law and you can't satisfy its demands, we can't be freed from the power of sin by law keeping. Did you get that? Since if you're living under the law and you're trying not to sin, there's, there's, you, you won't be able to do that. So you're going to be living under sin's dominion because you can't stop sinning by keeping the law. Sin's power is only broken by the grace of God in providing Jesus as the ultimate law keeper who died for our law-breaking. And Paul's statement also means that to be under grace is to be liberated from the dominion of sin and be liberated from the reign of law. So this morning, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and in his law-fulfilling life for you and in his death that paid for your law-breaking, then now you are entering under grace. And now you're liberated. You're liberated from the domain of the law. It doesn't mean this, the law is bad. It's, it's God's law after all. It's, it reveals God's character. It reveals God's nature. It reveals who he is, how, what his standards are. But the reality is we can never please God by trying to meet all of his standards because we never will. Now we come under grace. And grace says you've fully satisfied the demands of God by your faith in Jesus Christ because he satisfied God's demands. 
Paul's telling us, trying to secure God's righteousness through law-keeping, it keeps you under the dominion of sin. Did you get that? Trying to make yourself righteous by keeping the law, thinking that way will actually lead to more and more lawlessness. In Paul's life, think about it, his, his most egregious sins. He, he wrote of his early life as a Pharisee. Anybody remember that? He wrote his early life as a Pharisee, and he said, he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the keeping of the law, what? Blameless. But in the midst of that, Paul's most egregious sins were when he was trying to keep the law the most. Paul ended up killing Christians out of a desire to keep the law. He ended up punishing and throwing them in jail and torturing believers in Jesus Christ to the point that that Jesus says, Paul, you're persecuting me with your legalism, your law-keeping. It led to the most condemning sins that Paul could ever commit. And Paul then is, is explaining to us, that's not how to grow, that's not how to produce fruit for God. I've done that, I've lived that way. That doesn't work. It's not, it's not what God intends. You see, we're under grace. And, and grace that gets rid of legalistic, pleasing God, it, it, it enables us to then live in God's character and nature. And then we can really produce fruit. We can put off everything that belonged to our old life of sin. We can put on God's character. Why? Because we're liberated. We're in God's kingdom. Look in verse 1 of Romans 7. He says, Do you not know, brothers... And he's referring back to Romans 6, 14. That's why I read it a minute ago. He says, don't you know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Only as long as he lives. The mands of the law only apply to you if you're alive. Think about that. It's kind of a no-duh, Paul, right? Imagine that this morning, just look at me for a minute, and just imagine this morning that you have committed some egregious crime, whatever, whatever the, the worst crime is you can think of. Think of the, the worst crime you think of, and think you're guilty of it, and you're actually guilty of that crime. And the state finds out, and the state prosecutes you, and they take you to court, and the, 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 the mountain of evidence is so large, they find you guilty. But while you're sitting there, on the bench, before the, the jury has had their time to recommend a sentence against you and the judge pronounce your sentence, while you're sitting there, you have a massive coronary heart attack and you die. I know it's a happy thought, but... So you're guilty, but you die on the bench. Well, the trial's over. The jury doesn't even bother reading their verdict. It doesn't matter anymore. You're dead. The judge doesn't pronounce the sentence because there's nothing to pronounce the sentence on. There's no one there to condemn. The law immediately no longer applies to you. The case is closed. The trial is over. Court is dismissed. Nobody is against you any longer because you're dead. There's no sentence carried out. There'll be no punishment since you're dead. That's what Paul's saying. The law is only binding on you if you're alive. Now stop and think about that for a moment. That's a wonderful truth for us. The implication for you is huge. Paul told us that by faith, he says you're dead to sin. And our old man is dead in the death of Christ. So now think about that. All of the demands of the Mosaic law, every one of them that you are guilty of, and by the way, you're guilty of pretty much all of them. Have you ever hated somebody in your heart? You're guilty of murder. You ever lusted after somebody? You're guilty of the sin of adultery. Have you ever stolen or lied or not worshipped God? Have you ever, think of all the sins that you have done. You are guilty, and there is a mountain of evidence against you. But here's the good news. Paul says it only applies to you if you're alive to your old man. The penalty of God. Here's, here's the news that Paul is announcing that's meant to change your mind so that you can bear fruit, so that you want to bear fruit, so that you can rejoice and have joy in the Christian life. He says... The penalty for breaking the laws of God no longer applies to us in Christ Jesus. He says, Betty or Bill or Sally or Ryan or Chris or Lee or 
whatever your name here is this morning. He says, the case is closed. The trial is over. Court's dismissed. God's law is not against you anymore because you're dead. Your old man is dead. There can be no sentence carried out. Why this fear and unbelief is not the father put to grief his precious son for us. You no longer labor under the idea that we have to keep the law to please God. That's what he's saying, because you're no longer alive to the law. You're dead. No punishment. It can't even be carried out. There's no sentence. It's already been carried out on Jesus. He died, and in his death, you died. So by way of illustration, what's Paul doing? He's trying to change your minds so that we realize the truth that we've been set free. Now look in verse 2. Look in verse 2 of Romans chapter 7. He says, Thus a married woman, so in that regard, so we're, a married woman is no longer alive. It says a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. It's like we were married to the law. We were married to our old self in Adam. A married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Now, in, in the Jewish law, this is important for you to know. In the Jewish law, a woman had no right to divorce her husband. I know that we don't have a paradigm for that today in the no-fault divorce. And, and, but in the Jewish law, a woman in that day had no right to divorce her husband. The husband could actually divorce his wife for any reason. It was ridiculous. It was chauvinistic in some sense. It was, it was, it was not good. The woman was bound. Paul's not endorsing that idea, but he says, the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. And he's saying, but if... If her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. He's, he's giving a truth that every law-abiding Jew would know that a wife has no right to divorce her husband, even though the husband could divorce her. She is bound forever. That would really stink if you had an adulterous husband. The Jews actually wouldn't even allow a wife at that time to be divorced for adultery. Where Jesus now frees us from that. She's bound to keep her marriage covenant and submit to her husband while he lives. But Paul also shares something else. He says the only way for that woman to be freed from that obligation to her husband, that marriage, is if the husband dies. But if the husband dies, obviously she's free. She's no longer married. She can remarry, and it's not adultery. But if she was to be married to him and say, I'm not going to live with you anymore. I'm going to go live with somebody else he says in verse 3, look in your Bibles, accordingly she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. Of Every good Jew and every even Roman Christian knew that. And he says in verse 3, but if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So he's giving us a plain truth. And he's actually relating as if we are the woman married to this law that we cannot get free from. We can't get free from being married to the law. We're bound to it. We have no way of getting out unless we die or the law dies. We are bound forever. Bound to submit. On the other hand, it says if she marries another man after her husband dies, she's not breaking the law. She's not bound to obey it. She's not an adulteress. She's freed from the law that would have found her guilty of adultery and free to remarry another without breaking the law in any way. Why is Paul telling us this? He's giving us an illustration. He's giving us an illustration to show us a point. The point is that, not, not that in verse 4, you know, in verse 4 he flips things around, but he's trying to show the point that there is a relationship that is severed in death. Before death, we're obligated. We're that woman before death, obligated. But after death, we are no longer obligated. Even though he flips it around and says that it's we who've died, what he's trying to show is this principle that death severs the marriage relationship. You're not married, believer. You are not married anymore to the law. You're not obligated to it. You don't have to submit to it. You don't have to do what it says. You see why he's doing this? He's showing us yet another aspect that we were married. We had that relationship. Before he told us we were slaves. What's he doing? He's trying to change our thinking and our minds 
so that we might not be tempted to sin. Look in verse 4. He says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, here's the purpose of us dying, so that we might belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that, so that, so we died to the law, so that we could actually get married again, but this time get married to a good spouse, to a spouse who loves us. And then he says, and the whole purpose of that is so that, in order that, we might what? You can say it out loud, that we might what? Bear fruit for God. We were legally obligated to the law. We faced a penalty for breaking our covenant with the law. You know, in the Old Testament, God consistently calls those who broke the law adulterers. That's not true of us. When we break the law, we're no longer obligated to that law. We're no longer adulterers. It's not how God sees us. We're freed from the law. And we've been free, put to death in, to the law and the death of Christ. When Christ was put to death on the cross, it's like God put us to death so that he might raise us to life again. And so Paul's saying we're free from the law. Death severed our marriage, severed our obligation. And so get this. Believer, we know that we're unfaithful to the law, Right? Here's what he's saying. Even if you're unfaithful, you're not an adulteress. Why? Because you're not married to the law. We're freed from the whole idea of being unfaithful since we aren't married to the law anymore. We've died to that covenant. That covenant's dead to us in the death of Christ. We can't be found unfaithful. The one we belong now by faith is Jesus Christ, who's been, and he says, the one who's been raised from the dead. That's our hope. In him, we've been raised to new life. That's our hope and our battle against sin. We have to remind ourselves we've been raised to new life so we can have hope, so that we don't give up, so that we don't grow faint, so we don't lose heart. We've been raised to new life. We could just stop there. We have new life in Christ. We can rightly belong to another we have a new marriage. You're married now this morning, whether you're single or not, you know, biologically in this world's realm. You're married if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus has married us now, and we belong to him. Isn't that good news? It means he's for you. It means he's going to do everything in his power because you're his bride to care for you, to love you, to provide for you, to wash you with the water of his word, to make you spotless and pure. Jesus is married to you. We're covenanted to him for life. And here's the thing he's saying. He says that Jesus was raised to life. And now in him, in our union with him, we have new life. And it's the kind of life that never dies. And why does he tell us that? Because you know how a marriage is annulled? He told us earlier. The only way to annul a marriage is by what? By death. All right, till death do us part. Uh, that's what he's talking about, the Jewish law, the Old Testament law was, by, only death could annul that. But here's the wonderful thing now. Jesus will never die. There's never till death do we part. And you know what else? In our union with him, we never die. So the marriage is forever, is what he's saying. That gives us security. That gives us hope. It won't be parted in death. It's an unbreakable union in him. In him we live forever. And then look in verse 5. It continues this marriage analogy. He continues his marriage analogy, and what he is trying to show us is he's saying the whole point is so that we might bear fruit for God. That's the, the second idea in these verses, is so that we might bear fruit for God. The latter part of verse 4, he, he's married us to him, to Jesus, so that we might bear fruit for him. We're married to the law. We're living in the flesh. Look in verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's almost like a birth analogy. We're married and we're aroused by, by the passion. Our passions are aroused by the law. And then they're at work in our members and it bears fruit for death. What this means is that even as the law sets forth God's standards, it, it arouses sinful desire to rebel against God even more. 
When, when we first moved here, um, I, I visited Bob Jones to get to know the culture and see the, the area, and I'd never heard of Bob Jones before, and somebody told me about it, so I went to visit him, went to the campus, and it's a nice campus, and they have great, nice green grass, and they have these little signs on the grass, though. At least they used to. I don't know if they have them anymore or not, but they did like nine years ago. So, and these little signs on the grass say, keep off the grass. I just wanted to put my foot on the grass, and I did. I know it's wrong, it's disobedient, but I wanted to. I hated the law. I hated the legalism. I wanted to rebel. Everything in me just saw that sign. It says, who are you to tell me what I can do or not do? I can walk on that grass. Why can't I be on that grass? And we even changed our baby on the grass. (laughs) Defiled the grass. And I was proud of it. I'm not really proud of it. It was disobedience. It was rebellion. But in my pride, what does that law do? It creates a desire to disobey because as humans, we have this rebel nature, this indwelling, remaining sin nature that wants to rebel against God's law. That's what Paul's saying. The law doesn't bring life. It tempts us to rebel. And if you're trying to live legalistically, you're either gonna, you're gonna either sin and being self-righteous or you're gonna sin and being false and pretending and a hypocrite and covering up and lying about who you really are, and your heart's going to end up dying on the vine if you're living a legalistic life trying to please God that way. Paul says the life only brings, living for the flesh aroused by the law, it only brings death. You know, I see a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. Man, I am so, I'm so tempted to be like, really? <laughs> is, it, is it really wet? I don't care if I get it on my fingers or not. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's wet. Look at that. I got a fingerprint up there. Um, I, I don't know. It's not good. It's not good. Apart from God's grace, our innate human nature is to live by our own rules and be our own God. And, and Paul says, if you want to bear fruit for God, you can't do that. You can't live by the law. It's going to tempt you. It's going to arouse sinful desires in you. If you're living legalistically, it's actually going to bear death. That's what it's going to give birth to. Yeah, James helps explain this. Uh, Paul, I mean, uh, sorry, Aaron, <laughs> the apostle Aaron. No, he's not an apostle. I'm, I'm just teasing. He's, he's a pastor. We don't, we don't have that. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. It was a joke. Um, Aaron, a, a few messages ago, about nine weeks ago or so, he opened the book of James for us. In James 1.14, look in your Bibles or look up on the screen. He explains this, this whole premise, and he says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it fully is grown, brings forth death. What Paul is helping us with, he's not just changing our minds, he's also changing our heart's desire. And he's saying, if you're desiring to please God with the law, it's going to lead to death. Let me give you a better desire. Let me give you the godly desire. Let me give you the desire that God intends for us that will bear fruit. Because he says, as long as you're married by obligation to keep the law, you're only going to bring forth and bear sin, the fruit of that dead marriage. The good news for us, though, is we've been released from the law and sinful passions and desires since we've been released from having to live for our old spouse. And so, look in verse 6. He says, but now we're released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What is he trying to say? He's saying we're no longer captive to this awful, oppressive marriage that we've had to the law. What we read in Galatians, the same truth in this, in this motive of love, this, this motive of the fact that we are married to Jesus now, that he loves us, and, and we love him in return. And so Paul is trying to give us a tool here. He's trying to put us in an environment that we might grow. Our minds are changed. We're not married to the law. Our desires are changed. Jesus is married to us now. Jesus married us. We belong to him. And so our desire is a love for God, and that love for God bears fruit. Galatians 2.19. Look in your Bibles. Look up on the screen. Galatians 2, 19 and 20, he says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live, what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. The very life motive for the Apostle Paul and that he's trying to impart to all of us the desire that we need to change. We're tempted in the mind, we're tempted in the desires. He's trying to give us a desire, a new desire, saying because Jesus now loves you and he's married to you and he's called you to be his bride. So now out of love, out of love for him, now produce fruit. That produces fruit. Because Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. As a husband who did everything to woo us and gave up everything to pursue us. Christ's love is compelling. He loves us when we are unworthy. He loved us when we were actually dead in sin. He loved us and gave himself up for us to the point of a humiliating death on a cross to rescue you and make you his bride. And we're married to Jesus. And you know what? Because I'm married to Julie, I've been married to her for over 20 years, coming up on 21. And you know what? I actually want to be married to her. I want to love her. I want to I do nice things for her. Later on tonight, I'll, I'll, cook, I'll attempt to cook a Mother's Day dinner for her. I, I want to love my wife. I want to serve her. I want to give myself for her. Because she's married to me. She's condescended to marry me. I don't, I don't deserve her. She's a wonderful gift to me. And when you're married, although it means you have some restrictions, they're joyful restrictions. They're glad restrictions because you love your spouse, in a loving marriage at least. Because I'm married to Julie, I enjoy doing things for her. I enjoy serving her. I, I want to care for her. I want to be with her. I want to work for her. I want to treat her to things. I want to take her out. I want to give her flowers and bless her. And, 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 and let, let me tell you, when, the more that I do those things, actually the more I enjoy my marriage and the more I enjoy her and the more fruit there's produced in my marriage as I'm loving her it 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 spurs in me a desire to to do what to bear fruit of a good marriage really and and that's the analogy that Paul is giving us and he's saying that you you can live for God now not out of a desire to approve be approved by God by your living but because God's approved of you, he's condescended to marry you, he's rescued you, he's made you alive, and he says, I want you, I love you. And you say, God, I want to love you in return. And so now we gladly serve God in keeping with his character and the new life of the Spirit, this new life, this new marriage that we have, because we want to love Jesus. And it's a joy to keep our marriage covenant to him. And we don't want to be unfaithful to him because it keeps us from enjoying our marriage. And as we're faithful to him, it actually causes us to enjoy our marriage with him even more. Second Corinthians 3.6 said, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know what that is? It's a direct fulfillment of Ezekiel. You remember back in Ezekiel? I think last year we, we preached from this passage, Ezekiel 36, 26. I want to call your attention back to it. This is the prophecy that God had to his people that's now fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, I will give you a new heart, a new desire, Okay? Put a new spirit, not the old spirit that you had, but the Holy Spirit. I'll remove from you your heart of stone, a heart that could not re respond to God. He says, and I'll give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow what? My decrees. The fruit of actually being in a new relationship and having a new heart and a new love and affection and desires for God is that you might be able to follow his decrees and careful to keep his laws. So the funny thing about being married to Jesus and having a new heart and new love for him is that actually makes us able to, to live out God's character. Life under grace is new life of the Spirit empowered by him through our love for Jesus. When you're tempted to sin, you're going to battle in two primary ways. 
You're going to battle the pest of sin in the garden of our minds with the tool of remembering we have no obligation to give in to those old sinful desires. We've been freed. Remember who you are. And then we battle in the sin in the area of our motives, our desires. We replace those old dead motives with a new compelling motive. What's the compelling motive? Jesus is married to us. We're married to him. I want to enjoy my marriage. I don't want a crummy marriage. I have the most wonderful spouse in the world. You know, someday, this weirds me out. (laughs) It just does. I I mean, I I hate to admit, I'm I'm a pastor, I should know better. It weirds me out. I won't be married to Julie one day. When we get to heaven, that marriage will go away. I, I don't like that. I like my marriage with Julie a lot. But the reason is, is because God says what our destiny is, what we were created for is to be married to him, the ultimately fulfilling relationship. And by the way, you have that relationship now if you're a believer. He gives us a new desire. Now think about this. Remember our marriage to Jesus and the fact that he's rescued us from a pointless and hopeless life. And, and, and just for a moment, and guys, this might be a little hard for you, but imagine you were a woman, okay? I don't, I'm not trying to encourage you to, to act like a woman, but imagine for a moment, because the scripture uses these, this terminology of Jesus the husband or the bride, okay? So just for a moment, set aside your uncomfortable notions with that idea. And imagine that you're a woman who is married to an abusive, domineering, harsh spouse, and you're living in a country that doesn't allow divorce. Maybe it's a place like the Islamic State-dominated area of Iraq. And that place allows your husband to abuse you. And you're beaten daily. And you, and you can't get free. And your husband commits adultery, and yet you can't get free. And you're, you're living a life of torment. And you're verbally and physically assaulted. Imagine living that kind of life and abuse, I think you might become despondent, right? You might lose hope. You might grow to hate your husband. You might grow to distrust men generally even. Now imagine that you're that woman and you're living in the most awful, abusive, horrific situation you can imagine and then imagine, as awful as it sounds, that your husband dies, you would be so relieved. You'd be relieved from that torment. But imagine that not only that happens, that your husband dies and you have this family friend that you grew up with before your husband moved you to the Islamic State. He lost touch with, is now living in the U.S. And, and they somehow were able to rescue you. And they got you over to the United States. And after you came back, they, they lobbied the embassy and, and they, they get you asylum. And, and now they set you up in your own house, on your own, and they get you a job. They get you a work permit. They set you up. They get you a car. And now imagine they share this good news of the gospel that liberates you in your heart, and you become a believer, and you know the joy of knowing Jesus. And then after years of continual kindness and provision and wooing you, this dear friend who's worked so hard and selflessly and tirelessly for your good, imagine that then this Man asks you to marry them. Maybe you find it hard to trust men, but your friend has proven himself faithful. After all that time, it just seems too good to be true. Why would they, why would they do that? They had no obligation to me. They had no reason to seek me out, to rescue me, to save me, to give me everything, to, to work for me for my good. And they ask you to marry them, and you finally have somebody who really cares about you, and it, but it's still a little hard. And imagine that you come through these back doors on your wedding day. And I'm standing here and you're coming up and, and there's tears going down your, your cheeks and you're, you're trembling a little bit. A little fear because you're past and you get to the front and you come up and a smile and say, you know what, I, it's, it's okay. He's proven faithful to you. He loves you. It's okay, this man's not like your old husband. You're free. You don't have to endure that anymore. That's not what marriage is about. That marriage is gone and dead. This is a new marriage. This husband loves you. He's proven he only wants what's good for you. He's proven he can provide for you and care for you. And then I'd imagine if that truth, that new reality dawned on you, you might then 
be freed to enjoy and be married. Sometimes, though, you might be tempted and fall back into relating to your new spouse who's loving like that old man. You need to remember that Jesus rescued us, that he has provided for us. He sought us when we were strangers, wandering far from God. He came and gave up his glory and everything for us to rescue us. And put our, He came to put our old self to death that he might marry us. And he's wooed us and he's done everything for us. He's done only good for us and says that he only will do what's in our best interest. And as we remember our marriage, it gives us joy. It gives us a new desire. It says, I want to... I want to love him in return. I want to enjoy this new marriage. I want to love him. That way. I don't want to sin against him. I want to bear fruit. Christian, why in the world would you dig up your old husband? The law. Why would you do that? He's dead and buried. Don't dig him up. Don't dig up your old man, your old self, really, is the analogy. All our, our marriage to the law brought was death. Now that we're married to Jesus, we get to bear fruit for God instead of fruit for death. And fruit comes as we battle sin in our minds, how we think, and then our desires and our hearts. And as we're motivated by the rescuing love of Jesus who's made us his bride forever. Go and ask the band to come up and we'll close with a song. I want you to remember the joy that we have as we love him. That he's loved us as we battle sin in our minds. We love him with new motive to want to live for him because he loves us. God will use that, produce good fruit in us and he will cause us to grow as we pursue loving him with all that we are because he's loved us, because he's freed us, because he's married us. What a good gardener God is. What a privilege that he lets us see and bear fruit for his name. Amen? Are we doing Chains Are Gone? or What song are we doing? Nothing But the Blood. Can we do Chains Are Gone? Can we do that one? We can. Yeah, let's do that one. Let's do that one. Let's pray.